Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, good evening, guys. Hey, welcome along to Gateway. Thrilled that you're here with us. Um, If you're visiting, welcome. If you're regular, you know that we're in a series on the life of David. And we've been using David as a kind of a template of how God fashions men and women of God, men and women after his own heart. And in this study, what we've been doing, there's so many ways you could come at the life of David, but effectively what I've been doing is looking at the major geographical locations of David's life, of which there are five, and talking about the lessons that uh, God taught David in those particular geographic locations. So we started off with Bethlehem, where David was pretty much unknown, uh, unheralded, out in the back paddocks, looking after his father's sheep when nobody knew of him. And we talked about how God uses um, the, the tools of obscurity and um, monotony and reality and fashions uh, a heart that, that uh, is after his own. Um, The second week, we looked at Gibeah. Chris looked at Gibeah, and Gibeah was uh, Saul's court. And that was where God gave David early success. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it says that if you want to test a man, give him success. And uh, it's in that place where he had early success that God tested his heart using um, Saul's incredible insecurity to um, shape, shape David in significant ways. From there, you know the story well that, David, uh, that Saul's insecurities became so rabid and so violent that David literally had to flee for his life. And he ended up in the third location, the cave of Adullam. And we saw in Adullam, David tested by adversity. In the deserts of Judah, it says, you know, and, and some of us struggle with the fact that we might be going through a difficult time when we're supposed to be in the promised land. Um, The reality is that everybody struggles at times, and in those seasons, God is not far away. He's actually using the struggle. He's using the adversity to shape a soul. Uh, Last week, we looked at Hebron, where Saul, who had, as we know, pursued David for a number of years, is killed in battle, and the opportunity opens up for David to step immediately into that which Samuel had prophesied he would come into that he could be king over Israel. And all of David's mighty men are saying, now's your chance, the momentum's with you. Go up, seize Jerusalem, um, make the kingdom your own. And uh, we talked about opportunism and how sometimes open doors are God's, in God's providential dealings, not necessarily testing our willingness to go, but our, um, our willingness to actually stay. And what David did that is so different from what a lot of people do is that he didn't just assume the open door was God. He actually asked. And he said, Lord, do you want me to go up to Jerusalem? And the Lord said, no, I want you to go to Hebron. And David goes to Hebron. Is, uh, he, he, he has one-twelfth of what God promises him because he rules over the one tribe of Judah. And for seven years, he remains in Hebron. At that point in his life, he's 37 years old. It's been two decades since Samuel prophesied over him and said that he would be the king of Israel. During the seven years in Hebron, a man by the name of Ishbosheth, who is Saul's son, is ruling the remaining 11 tribes of Israel. 
Um, he really is a puppet king, and if you know the story, his general, Abner, is the one who is really pulling the strings. One day, Isbosheth is murdered by some wicked men, and in the confusion and in the political vacuum that it created, the elders of the tribes of Israel finally come to David and invite him to be their ruler. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 says, Before long, all the tribes of Israel approached David in Hebron and said, Look at us, your own flesh and blood. In times past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really ran the country. Even then, God said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be the prince. All of the leaders of Israel met with David at Hebron, and the king made a treaty with them in the presence of God, and so they anointed David king over Israel. So finally we see what Samuel had prophesied 20 years before come to pass. David moves his family and his men up from Hebron to Jerusalem. Their first task is to secure Jerusalem as his capital and drive out the Jebusites who had lived there for centuries. So 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 says, David and his men immediately set out for Jerusalem to take on the Jebusites who lived in that country. They said, that's the Jebusites, you might as well go home. Even the blind and the lame could keep you out. You can't get in here. They had convinced themselves that David couldn't break through, but David went right ahead and captured the fortress of Zion, known ever since as the city of David. Let me just talk to you a moment about this geographical location, the place Zion. Zion is, in effect, a city within a city. Jerusalem was built on seven hills, and Zion is the highest of those hills, located in the southwestern corner of the city of Jerusalem. If you know anything about the geography of that time, uh, Jerusalem was regarded as an impregnable city. It had steep ravines on the east, the south, and the west side, which meant that an army in that, in that season, and that a condition of ancient warfare couldn't really attack. They could only come from the north, which was eminently defendable. Um, within Jerusalem, if, if Jerusalem itself was impregnable and regarded as a fortress, Zion was even more of a fortress. It had been, as I mentioned, inhabited by a tribe called the Jebusites. When Joshua and the children of Israel came into the promised land, they captured and subdued much of it, but Zion and the Jebusites remained resistant and unbowed. And it says in Joshua 15, verse 63, the people of Judah couldn't get rid of the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, and the Jebusites stayed put living alongside the people of Judah, and they're still living there in Jerusalem. This is what Joshua says. And they remained there, and they remained resistant to Israel's rule for nearly 500 years. When David came against them, they were so confident that they simply mocked. They, they believed in their ability to resist, and they said to David and his men, the blind and the lame among us could keep you out. We will be able to keep you at bay. You know what? In a manner of speaking, Zion um, talks to us about this matter of prophetic fulfillment. As I say, the land of Canaan had been promised to Abraham and his descendants. Over the years, they had captured and subdued much of it, but this portion remains stubbornly resistant to their rule. And I suspect that every time the children of Israel looked up and saw the fortress of Zion, they were reminded that things weren't the way they were supposed to be. Zion stood as a prophetic anomaly, promised but not possessed. 
And after 500 years, the children of Israel must have been tempted to doubt that it was ever going to come under their jurisdiction. After that length of time, with no prophetic word being fulfilled, it would be easy to despair and even doubt the fact that God had promised them rule over it. And I suspect that if you stop, many of us can identify with that. Maybe you've had prophetic promises over your life, things that you believe God has spoken to your heart about what will come to pass. But although some things may have happened, there are still places like, like Zion that stand as monuments, prophetic anomalies, if you like, things that have been promised but that you have not yet possessed. For some of us, it might be the fact that we have a family member that stands outside the circle of faith and seems stubbornly resistant to the gospel message in spite of the fact that you felt that God had spoken to you that they would come to know him. Maybe for some of you, it's an area of ministry that you feel called to, but while you've seen some things happen, the door and the pathway into that particular promise just seems blocked, and, and the dream that you have just seems to mock you. It could be a point of sickness that stubbornly resists any attempt to bring healing to it. And while you're seeing some things in your life where God is manifesting himself in real powerful ways, this particular thing stands as a prophetic anomaly. And every time you look up, it mocks you because God, it seems, has not fulfilled his promise to you. And so it's very easy in circumstances like that to become somewhat discouraged and maybe even despairing. Did God even really promise me that? However, we see in the story, as far as this fortress of Zion is concerned, God's moment finally comes. God's anointed moment and his anointed person arrives and Zion is taken. You know, in the purposes of God, it was always intended that it would be. The word Jebusite literally means he will be trodden down. And while it seems a long time to us, the promise of God nevertheless remains. Zion, of course, was about David's prophetic fulfillment. And it's here, once he conquers this place, that Zion and Jerusalem and the kingdom of Israel is finally his. The promise that Samuel had made to him two decades before has now been realized. And what I'd like to do just very briefly tonight is talk to you about a few things that I think we can learn from David coming to this geographic location of Zion. And the first thing I've kind of referenced already, but we're reminded again that God's promises over our lives do come to pass. They just don't come in our time and in our way, but they do come to pass. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 speaks about the arrival of the promised Messiah. And the scripture says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of time. One translation says, in God's strategic time. You know what? God has a strategic time for each one of us. I think it becomes very clear early on in our journey that his strategic time is quite different from our timetable and our hopes for our dreams. Someone is quipped that God has, is never late, but he misses some opportunities to be early. He just never arrives on time. And Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 tells us the two necessary ingredients we need if we're going to see God's promises come to pass in our lives. And it says, then instead of being lazy, you will become imitators of them who are inheriting the promises through faith and patience. And you do need both of them. You need faith and patience. 
if you're going to come into those things that God has promised you. And David waited. We saw that last week. He was not an opportunist. He didn't move in the strength of his own ideas and flesh. He waited with faith and with patience. And friends, there's no substitute for the confidence that you feel finally in arriving at your destiny in God's time and in God's way. And David knew beyond any shadow of a doubt when he stood in that moment that it was God who had made him king. He hadn't cheated along the way, as it were, and sought the kingdom by illicit means. He didn't kill Saul when he had opportunity to, on at least two occasions. He didn't manipulate the elders of Judah to come and anoint him king over their tribe. He didn't, uh, he didn't negotiate with, with Abner to try and overthrow Ishbosheth. He didn't persuade the elders of Israel to finally come and anoint him after Ishbosheth was killed. David's becoming king was God's idea from start to finish. And David, believing that, had no motivation to try and make it happen. He waited with faith and patience. And since he hadn't made himself king, he felt no pressure to ensure that he remained king. He was, in fact, a profoundly secure man, much unlike his predecessor. As you, uh, as you study David's life, you'll notice that the things that drove Saul, the insecure Saul, to clutch at and defend his territory were completely absent from David's life. And David did not turn out to be King Saul II. You see this most clearly when Absalom, David's son, rises up against him. And David gives this young rebel uh, a degree of latitude that his predecessor Saul would never have allowed. Saul in his insecurity would have perceived and acted quickly against the threat that Absalom, Absalom posed. But David, secure in the knowledge that the kingdom had been given to him by God, didn't feel the need to rise up and defend it, even from his own son. You know when people strive and manipulate and push in their own strength to get some desired position, the reality is they may actually achieve the prominence, the position, the notoriety that they actually seek. But the problem comes when you've done it by your own strength that you have to maintain what you've achieved by the same means. And because of the way they've attained it, people like that lack the security and confidence that that position was actually given to them by God. And often such people are consumed with insecurity and with fear, and the concern is that somebody will take from them what they have managed to secure from themselves. And those kinds of people live with a deep anxiety and insecurity because they can never be deeply sure that God gave them that position because they struggled, they maneuvered, they manipulated, and they finally got what they were after. But did God give it to them? Big question mark. If you've built on faulty foundations like that, then the whole structure that you've built bears the marks of instability. And what I would say to you tonight is, let God bring you to your promise. Let God bring you to Zion. Wait with faith, with faith and patience. Don't be, be like a David. Don't force the issue. Don't be an opportunist. Don't manipulate others to get you into your dream. There is no second best in this area. You either arrive legitimately with the confidence knowing that heaven is backing you, or you arrive illegitimately and you will be riddled with anxiety. Second thing, 
God does not bring you to the fulfillment of your dream, to Zion, for your own personal enrichment. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, this is a wonderful verse, it says, David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the people Israel's sake. That is a crucial revelation that every single leader needs, that when God brings you to a place, it's not about your personal enrichment. It is that you might be a means to an end, and the end is the people of God. He is prepared, he's established, he's brought to this place where his kingdom is exalted, and God explains to him that it is for the people Israel's sake. You know, people confuse the shadow with the substance when they imagine that fame and power and success are the traits of a great leader. Fame is being given to fools and power to tyrants. The real test of greatness is not whether a man or a woman possesses fame or power, but rather it is how they employ it, how they leverage, as it were, that dream for the blessing of other people or whether they simply use that position for their own personal enrichment. David understood a crucial truth, a truth that I think has largely been lost on our generation, and it's simply this, that leadership is about servanthood. And that servanthood is not the means by which you attain a leadership position, but it is the essence of leadership itself. You don't serve until you become a leader and then give up servanthood and get served. Rather, leadership is simply servanthood on a larger stage at a more strategic dimension. And to lose that or to miss that or to misunderstand that is to misunderstand God's dealing in a person's life and why he brings you into the fulfillment of your dream and into a place of leadership. So many people in so many fields come to the fulfillment of their dream, to Zion, as it were, and promptly lose sight of why it is that they were positioned there. And that happens a lot among God's people as well. You know, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, verse 15 and 16, it talks about a king, King Uzziah, and it says, Uzziah was marvelously helped until he was strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his own destruction. That could be written over the lives of so many people, people who struggle to come into the position that they've longed for, to the success that they somehow believe that they're destined for, to the notoriety that they hoped would happen, and their hearts are lifted up in pride and they come crashing down. You know, the interesting thing is, in spite of all of the preparation, the profound and intense preparation that David went through, it was at this very point that he stumbled and fell. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba, and in the West, of course, if you've ever seen a movie concerning it, it always always concerns the seductive uh, um, elements of of David's fall, the, the physical elements of his adultery. But in the ancient East, the issue is not addressed so much in terms of the erotic seductiveness of the situation, but is rather the what is underscored is David's abuse of power. If you read the parable that Nathan tells the king, it isn't 
it doesn't focus on the physical aspects of his adultery. It talks about a man who takes something that belongs to another person, the only thing that this other person had. When the rich man had all his resources, but he uses his riches and wealth to rob another person. The whole point of that parable is you have misused your place of leadership to exploit somebody who actually depended on you for protection. And when, as a leader, you do that, that's exactly what you're doing. And the issue here, as much it was as, it, as it was adultery, the issue is the abuse of power. That's what God goes after through Nathan to David. When you come into the fulfillment of your dreams, it's paramount that you understand that you are being called to serve God's purposes and God's people and not simply to be personally enriched. Thirdly, and finally, some people naively assume that when you come into the fulfillment of your dream, when that position finally opens up before you, when you finally come to Zion, you can close the book and say they all lived happily ever after. No more problems, no more trials, everything that I've wanted has finally arrived, all now sweetness and light. You know, some people are incredibly naive about how happy they will be when their dreams are finally realized. What they don't understand is there's an old adage that they probably really should keep in mind. Higher levels, bigger devils. Okay, higher levels, bigger devils. Management guru Peter Drucker says this, success always makes obsolete the very behavior that, it, that achieved it. It always creates new realities. It always creates, above all, its own and different problems. Only fairy tales end, they lived happily ever after. When God lifts you to a position, um, all your problems aren't gonna go away. You're going to have a whole new set of problems to see God be amazingly creative in. Zion won't diminish problems and challenges. It's more likely that they'll actually increase them. David didn't live trouble-free in Jerusalem. He no sooner comes to the kingdom than the Scripture says, when the Philistines heard that they'd anointed David king over Israel, all of the Philistines came up to seek David. His position is immediately contested by an enemy that is invested in making sure that his kingdom never really flourishes. And you have to understand, we are living in a world where there are principalities and powers. We, 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 the scripture says we don't fight flesh and blood. We fight principalities and powers. And I'm telling you that as you seek God and as God promises you things and as God begins to bring you into those promises, you will be contested. Peter says, hey, listen, don't be surprised when these things happen. R read 1 Peter. He's saying, don't be surprised. This is the nature of the world in which we live. And as you come into your dreams, there'll be challenges, and you will be required to continue in faith and patience. David's elevation brought him bigger problems rather than solving them all. So I'm not trying to be negative. I'm simply trying to be realistic about our lives and our callings. False expectations are unbelievably destructive, and they create all kinds of disappointments and disillusionments. It is the nature of success to test you in ways that you've never been tested. Abraham Lincoln once said, nearly all men can stand adversity. If you want to test a man's character, give him power. Give him success. Give him notoriety. 
Can you cope with it? Have you handled it? Could you handle it? Well, all of the preparations of David, you know, over this long season have been so that he would come into the fulfillment of his dream and he could stand there successfully. I said this morning, you know, God loves you too much to give you an unbroken run of success because he knows what it'll do to you. The same thing it did to Uzziah. Marvelously helped until he was strong and then his heart was lifted up in pride. And, and the fact that you are going through some testings, the, the fact that you sometimes find yourself in the cave of Adullam in the deserts of Judah aren't an indication that God has forgotten you and, that doesn't, and he doesn't care for you. On the contrary, he cares profoundly and deeply for you, so much so that he will not simply bring you into the fulfillment of your dream without you being prepared for that. You know, as I've said a number of times through this series, you can, you can look at any field you like, from politics to entertainment to sport, people who rise quickly into a place of notoriety and prominence, and they simply can't cope with the, with the, um, the, the attention that that brings. And, they, and, and the waves of success simply tip them over, sweep them away. What God is doing in this process of preparing you is, as I've used a number of times as an analogy, he's putting ballast in the bottom of your boat. If you don't know, if you're not a sailor and you don't know what ballast is, ballast is a profound weight beneath the waterline, weight that equals anything that's above the waterline so that if the boat is tipped over in a storm, the weight in the base of the boat will pull it back down and, and right itself. And if for some reason there hasn't been sufficient ballast, if you put more weight above the water than you have below the water and the waves come, it'll simply tip you over. Uh, an ancient king of Sweden built a, he wanted to build the biggest warship that had ever sailed on the seas and he, bought, uh, he built a boat called the Vasa. Normally, uh, normally the boats at that stage were just one deck lined with, with heavy cannons, you know. But this king, Gustavus Adolphus, built a boat with two decks and he lined it with cannons. This thing was the biggest thing that, that the world had ever seen. Well, the day for the launch came and, uh, you know, the band's there and the sausage rolls are served and the, and the boat goes down the spillway into the water and it went out about 50 meters under its own strength and there was just a tiny wave and it tipped the boat up and then finally it just rolled over. And it would have been hilariously funny, except that there were at least a dozen sailors who were trapped below and lost their lives. Simple principle. He had more weight above the waterline than he had below it. If you want to be a big gun, make sure there's weight beneath you. Okay, make sure that in the quiet times and in the difficult seasons, you allow God to build ballast into your character. The thing that I love about David, and maybe we'll get a chance to look at it in the coming weeks because I haven't quite finished the series, is that David was a man who walked in integrity of heart. And integrity of heart is about hearing the dealings of God deep in your spirit. When nobody else is around, nobody else is watching, nobody else knows, but it's you learning to respond to the promptings of God as he's seeking to fashion a character within you. And it was that integrity of heart that held David even in the time that he was tipped up. His boat tipped right over with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, and he should have probably sunk, except there was enough of a counterweight to bring him back to equilibrium. Now, he lived with the consequences of those decisions, but he remained a man of God in spite of his failure. 
So respond to the dealings of God through the seasons because when he brings you to the fulfillment of your dream, you're going to need that character to hold you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.